Let me invite you to stand at this time. Turn in your Bibles or click open your apps to Isaiah chapter 5. So if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're in a series in Isaiah. We took a break in November, and now we're back picking that series up where we left off, and we'll be in Isaiah 5, and I'm going to read a longer section of Scripture to you, verse 13 through 30, and this is the closing argument of God against His people. He's showing forth, this is what's going to happen, and here's why it's going to happen, and so it will feel like, as you hear the word, therefore, used three times in this passage, it is a concluding Uh, case that God has made in His holiness against His people and what He will do as a result. And we'll see how it intersects with our life uh, this morning. So beginning in Isaiah 5.13, Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich." Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that, he may see, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil and put, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp and their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions. They roar, they growl, and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Let's pray together.
Lord, how we ask as we come to your scripture that you would give us your wisdom and insight to hear how we might best apply this word from you, and we might go as you direct us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I'm not sure why this is the case, but people love courtroom drama, don't they? And we love it too. Think about it for a moment. There's even this court TV, I'm not judging you, court TV. I'm not judging you. Court TV, people watch court case, cases and proceedings. And even this summer, uh, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, uh, their courtroom case broke records and the pronouncement of the verdict on court TV was watched by 500,000 people. If you want to know what's wrong with America, there it is. But we're fascinated with what happens in the courtroom, whether it's you grew up with Perry Mason or you're more of a uh, Jag, Tom Cruise, who could forget, uh, A Few Good Men, You Can't Handle the Truth, Jack Nicholson. We love the courtroom drama, Judge Judy, uh, that whole thing. So here we are at a court case that really matters. Here we are in Isaiah 5 where God is bringing to a conclusion his court case, which he started back in chapter 1, pointing out the sin of Israel and showing that what he is about to do to them is absolutely justified and is meant, motivated by his love, his loving kindness, his endurance, his bearing with them, that they might repent and follow him. And so as we look at the conclusion, this this closing argument here, we'll see that the case is closed and the evidence is weighty against God's people. And the first thing I'm going to show you here is in verses 13 through 17, really three questions that we can ask of this text as they relate as this text relates to our life and these questions. And the first question is, what will happen? And this is in verses 13 and 17. And we find out that because of Israel's sin, they're uh, walking away from God, not following him. Verse 13, therefore, my people go into exile. So that's what is going to happen. God here predicts the future a couple hundred years before it will actually happen. He predicts exile, and he tells them about it because if the terror of exile sunk into their hearts, it might elicit repentance in them. And so, therefore, my people go into exile. Here's what's going to happen. And you see a modern-day version of this with Russia's aggression against Ukraine and what's happening there. And you hear about Russia's illegal deportation of children, how they're treating that populace. Uh, That is analogous to what's going to happen to Israel because the conquering nation would come in, wage warfare, destroy cities, and then take the individuals off into slavery, take them into exile where they might labor for the benefit of the conquering nation. So exile was a terrifying thing. And God says, it's going to happen. My people go into exile. He predicts the future here. God does. And because he is sovereign, because he is powerful, because the future belongs to him, 
then he says what is going to happen. Therefore, my people go into exile. Now, look in verse 13. Why are they going into exile? They lack knowledge. Do you see that? Verse 13, for lack of knowledge. Because of lack of knowledge, they're going into exile. Now, when we read that, and we're typically educated people, we place a lot of importance on education. If we see lack of knowledge, we immediately equate that with arrogance, and the solution for arrogance is to get those people out of Washington. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Maybe I'm not. The solution for ignorance is education, right? We want to, if they lack knowledge, we've got to educate them. We've got to help them grow and learn through book learning and lectures and everything that involves growth and knowledge. That would be wrong. That would be wrong. When the Bible talks about knowledge, an experiential, relational concept not just an intellectual one, is brought into focus. So the primary emphasis here, they lack knowledge. In other words, they do not have a true relationship with God. They are faking it. And in Christianity, you don't fake it till you can make it. And we see that if you go back to chapter 1, verse 13, God condemns them by pointing out their fake worship. Bring no more vain offerings, Isaiah 1.13. Incense is an abomination to me. God sees through their fake worship, and he calls them to true relationship. Adam, we would talk about knowledge this way biblically, Adam knew Eve. That's a relational knowing there, and that's the kind of lack of knowledge here that they have. So the problem is not that we need to learn more intellectual facts. This kind of knowledge is the application of that truth to our heart in the way it reflects in the spiritual fruit and obedience that we have with God. So they lack knowledge, and some of the consequences of that are seen in the second half of verse 13. In verse 14, Sheol, the grave, is going to open uh, through this exile. Remember, exile involves warfare here. And then look at verses 15 and 16. These are in contrast to each other. We read in verse 15, man is humble and each one is brought low. And we understand that's a forced humbling that's going to happen with the way that God condemns the pride of Israel in the earlier parts of Isaiah. So God is going to force a humbling on them. Each one is brought low. And that is in contrast to verse 16, God is exalted in justice. So God is going to be exalted. Man is going to be brought low. And then look at the end of verse 16 here. You get the repetition of holy. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And this holiness that's talked about there is the separation from sin, the set-apartness, the weightiness of God is brought to full relief up and against people who think too much of themselves. And the final result is summarized here in verse 17. Then shall the Lamb's 
graze as, their, as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. And the idea here is it's a picture of desolation, isn't it? Uh, the ruins, these beautiful buildings that were built and society being established, nomads are going to eat in those ruins and lambs shall graze because they're sort of a returning, moving away from the development to the pasture uh, because of Israel's sin and God bringing judgment and exile against them. So this answers the question, well, what's going to happen? And in verse 13, we learn clearly here, my people go into exile. It's a true prediction that is placed. And, you know, with the start of the new year here in 2023, uh, we see a lot of predictions. We see a lot of predictions are made. And sometimes there are predictions around uh, economic and financial things. These are going to be the sectors of the economy that really do well, or, or this is where you need to invest your money in these, these sorts of predictions. And I think if if we learned anything last year, well, nobody can tell the future. And sometimes we get the predictions along the, the sports side of things, don't we? <laughs> and, you know, some little team in Fort Worth in the preseason was unranked and is now playing for the championship tomorrow night. And TCU was overlooked, picked to finish seventh out of 10 teams in the Big 12 division. No one saw it coming. And that's the beauty of these kinds of predictions. And even the predictions you or I make, when we, when we look into the future and we say, this is what's going to happen, or this is how it's going to go, only God can do that. Only God knows the future, and I hope every Texan is cheering for our Texas team uh, tomorrow, but only God can predict things. You know, people last year said things like, inflation is transient. We cannot predict the future. Only God can do that. And so here's the application for you. Trust him with the year ahead. If he is sovereign enough to say what's going to happen for Israel, he is sovereign enough to know what's going to happen with us, that we would trust him with the future. And really, our attitude towards the future ought to be James chapter 4. James chapter 4 teaches us here how we should relate to the future. And it's really that we should hold on to our plans loosely. Of course, we're going to have plans, hopes, desires, and dreams for the future. And here's what James chapter 4, verse 13 tells us. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And my encouragement to you, and we all have plans. I mean, we could call these New, Year, New Year's resolutions, or maybe you're smart enough you don't make it a resolution. 
whatever our plans are, let's lay the year before the Lord and let's have open hands with regard to our desires and our plans and understand that it is the Lord's will that determines things and that we together can trust him for our future. He is a good and a loving God and we can trust him that whatever the future holds for us, he is working for our good and for his glory. And so hold the future plans that you have. Remember to understand it's if the Lord wills. If this is what God wants to happen, then it will indeed happen. And so we see here in verse 13, only God can tell the future, and he tells it with absolute accuracy. And the other application, not only to hold your plans on loosely, if someone gives a prediction, run the other way. Here's something I want you to do is don't pay attention to all the predictions, all the so-called experts out there. Instead, focus on what God has called you to do in terms of being faithful to him every day and trusting him in the moment in the moment that he has presented to you. So we answer that first question there. What will happen? We find out. God can predict the future. They're going to go into exile. Second question here is in verses 18 through 25. Is it fair? Is it fair that God would judge his people this way? And remember, I told you this is a court case here. So brought as evidence are four woes. These four woes show forth the character of Israel in their behavior. And they're brought as evidence that when we ask this question, is it fair that God would do this? We would say, absolutely, it's fair. Look at his people and look what they're doing. Now, the first woe there in verse 18, follow me here, it's actually the third woe. The first one's in verse 8 of chapter 5. The second one's in verse 11. So by the time we get to verse 18, we're on the third woe. And the characteristic of the behavior of the people that's brought into focus there, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. So you can kind of imagine here the analogy. These are people who go out and what are they lassoing? Sin and they're pulling it close to them. There's an attraction to that. Their desires are for sin, and they draw them quickly. Uh, they draw sin to themselves. And then look in verse 19. Uh, this is a little hard to follow, but I'll interpret it in a Texan way that we can all understand here. This is Israel saying, you know, if God's going to do all this stuff, if he's going to uh, bring us into exile, hold my beer, and bring it on, God. That's what is being said here. There's this arrogance in verse 19. Let him be quick. Let him speed his work. In other words, if he's going to bring us into exile, let's see how great he is. Come on, bring us now into exile that we may see it, verse 19, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near now, this is a very sinister statement because they're using this title that Isaiah favors, Holy One of Israel. They're using this language here. So it is very presumptive 
and assumptive in what they're doing. Verse 19 ends, let it come that we may know it. In other words, God, if you're going to bring us into exile, do it now or I won't believe or follow you. That's what's being said there. So very presumptive, very arrogant and prideful here. And God condemns that uh, behavior there with that first woe. The second woe in verse 20, what are those who call evil good and good evil? We unfortunately can say, okay, we're in familiar territory given our society now that celebrates that which is evil. Woe to those who call evil good, good evil, put darkness for light, light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. This exchange that is happening has a very sinister characteristic that God is calling out. He's calling out the corporate sin of the society. And for us, when we read verse 20 and we think, okay, this is 700 BC, we can fast forward to the first century AD to Romans chapter 1 verse 32. And what does Paul say of society in Romans 1 32? He writes, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things to deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So here's what I'm getting at. Look, the world was that way back in 700 BC, calling evil good. The world was that way in 100 AD, calling evil good and good evil. What's it like? In 2023, the world still calls evil good and good evil. So the message for us is really one of we need to trust God for this. I would phrase it this way. The outrage of conservative Christians does not accomplish the will of God. Our outrage doesn't functionally move forward the kingdom of God. We should save our outrage instead and focus on what God has called us to do. In other words, it is not our primary calling as Christians to point out that which is wrong with the world, which we're already told in 700 BC here in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. That's the way things are. It is going to be that way. And we don't, we're, we can lament it, but to be outraged by it is really a waste of time. Instead, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul calls us to this kind of life. What kind of life should you live in a society that calls evil good and good evil? 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 say this to us. To aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Can you imagine for a moment? The Bible tells us right here, instead of being outraged and taking our outrage out for a spin and using social media to broadcast our Christian outrage, what is first Thessalonians 4.11 tell us to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. 
This is what we're called to as God's people. Our outrage doesn't accomplish the will of God. The world is the way that it is, and our focus should not be on how we are bothered or outraged. Our focus should be on living that, aspiring to live that quiet life, minding our own affairs, giving glory to God in all that we do as we share and proclaim the gospel together. And so back to Isaiah 5, is it fair? We've talked about two woes. Yes, it is fair. Here's two woes as evidence and two more woes. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. So this is the pride and the arrogance which convinces people that their way is right such that you can't tell them anything. And yes, sometimes we are those people. We are so smart, so wise, so successful, we like to tell other people how to live their life and do their job. Wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. And then this woe, verse 22, the woe against drunkenness. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, valiant men and mixing strong drink. You know, Bernie, Texas is very drinky, as I would describe it. And here you go, a prohibition against being drunk and celebrating that. We need that still in our own society. And the problem with the strong drink, look in verse 23, the problem is it clouds their judgment who acquit the guilty for a bride and deprive the innocent of his right. Justice is compromised because there's not the sobriety necessary to think clearly. And so those woes, those four woes are presented there as evidence as God is closing the case against Israel, pointing out and showing their character. And then as we move into verses 24 and 25, notice the concluding type language that's used here. Therefore, and then in verse 25, therefore. So God is closing his argument there through Isaiah. What's going to happen? They're going to be burned up, verse 24. Why is this happening? The summary is, look at the end of verse 24, they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. Now, this is not just a rejection of the do's and don'ts that God has set forth. This is a rejection of his way and the pathway and what it means to lead a good life. That's all bound up in that idea, law of the Lord. So they've rejected that and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. There's that repetition of Holy One of Israel They've despised what he has to say to them. Verse 25, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. So God's going to judge them. The evidence and the proof is right there, those four woes. Is it fair that God would do this? Yes. And anytime someone would ask that question, Oftentimes, we have a skewed idea of justice when we ask that because God is holy and he has a right to do this. And so, we've seen two questions so far. We got one more question to finish out, 
And that question is in verses 26 through 30. Who will judge? And here's the amazing thing. Who will judge? Well, God's ultimately going to judge, but he's going to use other nations to bring that judgment. And it's a statement of how powerful, sovereign God is. Instead of directly implementing the judgment, what is he going to do? Look in verse 26. He'll raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. You see, God commands the nations. He can whistle for them like you or I whistle for our dog to come. And yes, my dog, every time hears that whistle, comes, sits, treat time. That's God's sovereign command over the nations. And so he's going to bring them, and they are, unlike Israel, they are a picture of health, strength, and power. Because Israel has walked away from God, and God has put his hand of judgment on them, they are the opposite of what we see with the nations. Verse 27, none is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. They've got their weapons ready. Verse 28, can you imagine this image in verses 29 and 30? It's like a powerful young lion coming, snatching the prey, and then going off back into the jungle or forest with their prey, and no one can grab that prey again, or rescue. None can rescue, verse 29. And it is a very hard image. As the clouds, look at the end of verse 30, the light is darkened by the clouds. We like it the other way. Like yesterday, did you notice about, I don't know, was that about 11 or 12? Day started off dreary. And then 11 or 12 o'clock, the sun breaks through. It's the opposite of that. And the reason it's the opposite is not because we worship a negative God. The reason it's the opposite is because God is impressing upon his people the need to repent. You see, as we get to the end of the court case here and the case is closed and God is going to bring his exile and judgment, the important thing is the opportunity to change and repent is still open. That invitation that God gives to his people in Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. That opportunity is still available and open to them. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That invitation still stands today, that we can come to God in repentance so what will happen? Only God knows. Exile. Only he knows the future. Is it fair that this exile would happen? Yes, the evidence is presented for us in a clear and compelling way with these four woes that are mentioned in verses 18 through 22. Who will do the judging? God is sovereign and powerful enough to call other nations to implement his will. And the invitation still stands to come, to repent, and to trust him with our future. Let's pray together.
Lord, how we thank you for the wonder of your grace, that you have anything to do with us, and we pray that you would enable us to trust you with our future, to know that you're the only one who can predict things, and help us as your people to walk with you and to follow you in this new year ahead, that we together would know your sovereign power and your wonderful and sovereign love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.